I'm going to open with a question. <clears throat> that question uh, is, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And my question isn't so much, how would you answer that? My question is, who would you cite to answer that? What would you reach for to answer that? If someone walked up to you and asked you that question, who is Jesus? Um, what would you cite as authority for that answer? You know, we live in a, in a, in a society, in a culture, in a day where um, we base truth on our feelings. We base truth on what feels right to us. And so if I were to go walk around downtown Grants Pass right now and to survey 50 people, I would guarantee that those 50 people would probably give me 50 different answers about who Jesus is. And I guarantee that most of those people would cite their own subconscious feelings or their own experiences or the, some knowledge that maybe they've collected along the way, not really knowing where it came from in regards to who Jesus is. The theologians uh, have a word for this, the study of Jesus. It's called Christology. You know, and as Christians, we desire to have a good Christology, to have a biblical Christology. And as Christians, when we think about answering the question, who is Jesus, um, what we reach for shouldn't be our own subconscious feelings or our own uh, experientially shaped uh, thoughts. What we reach for, what we should reach for is the credibility and the authority of the biblical authors, those that actually walked with Jesus, that knew Jesus, that heard his teachings, those that we're given the authority by Jesus to define him, to give us a Christology. We have four gospel accounts, uh, four histories, four narratives, if you will, in the New Testament of the person of Jesus. They're often referred to as the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. We are so blessed to hold within our hand writings from the original apostles that literally took the time to write down so that we could answer with credibility with objectivity, the question, who is Jesus? Not based on how we feel or what cultures made him to be, but based off of those who walked with him, those who were given apostolic authority, uh, based off of their definition. When Mark sat down to write, and write, this is the gospel we're gonna look at. When Mark sat down to write, I believe he was attempting to answer this very question. Who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? And that's exactly what we're going to wrestle with this morning. We're going to answer that question. You know, a lot of sermons are very much uh, full of imperatives, things that we need to do, things we need to address. This morning's sermon is going to be different. This morning's sermon, we're just going to behold Mark's, not imperatives, but Mark's declaratives. We're going to look at the things that are simply true of Jesus, the tenets of the, 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 the pieces of what makes him truly Jesus, according to the apostles, according to his closest followers, according to Christ himself. If you're a note taker and you like taking notes, we're going to actually see 12 things this morning about the person of Jesus. We're going to form a Christology this morning by looking at these first 12 verses. Now, since we are starting this book, I'd like to give a little bit of introduction to the book of Mark. Just a few things for you to jot down and consider as we dive into this next 16 chapters of the book of Mark. First thing I'd like you to think about is who wrote it? Who wrote it? Uh, well, Mark wrote it. Okay, well, who's Mark? <laughs> Was that one of the 12 disciples? I don't remember him being on the list. Uh, well, the answer is no, he wasn't one of the 12 disciples. His actual name is actually John Mark. 
John Mark, and it might ring a bell if you've been reading your Bible for a while. Uh, John Mark is a character who comes up um, quite a few different times in the New Testament, and if you string together all of the different things that we know about him, we get a decent picture of who this man was that wrote this, this gospel. John Mark would have been uh, probably a child at the time that Jesus um, did his ministry. We, we don't know if he was an eyewitness uh, necessarily to the life of Jesus, but what we do know about John Mark was that his mother owned a home, probably a decently large home. Um, that home was where the early church had started to gather within years after the resurrection of Christ. So when Peter was imprisoned, remember, in the book of Acts, and uh, the Lord allowed him to get out and to be let free. And then Peter comes and he finds the, uh, the early church gathering, Acts 2.42, for prayer and for, for breaking of bread and these things. He comes to the house of John Mark's mother. And so what that tells us is that John Mark, the one that wrote this gospel, he would have spent a lot of time as a child around Peter, around um, uh, Matthew, uh, around the 12 disciples, uh, around the followers, of, around Mary, around uh, Mary Magdalene, around Mary the mother of Christ. He would have spent time, he would have grown up in these gatherings, hearing the teachings of the apostles. We know from the book of Acts that as he got a little bit older, perhaps in his younger years as a young man, he accompanied Paul and Barnabas on a missionary journey. Do you remember this? And something went wrong. I mean, these weren't comfortable journeys. Okay, so maybe he got sick, maybe he was terrified, maybe he was frightened, I don't know. But for whatever reason, he decided to leave and defect early and go back home to, I believe it was Antioch. And in doing so, he sort of lost the trust of the Apostle Paul. Sometime later, Paul and Barnabas, uh, who were sort of companions in, in their missionary work, Paul and Barnabas uh, are having a discussion about what team to assemble for their next mission. And they get into an argument about whether to bring John Mark or not. John Mark was, I believe it was the nephew of Barnabas. Barnabas wanted to give John Mark another shot. Paul the Apostle took the other position and said, I don't think that we should bring him. Um, and so it created sort of a rift and they actually went their own separate ways. Paul ended up picking up a different missionary team. He picked up Silas and others and went off and, and Barnabas went off with, with John Mark. So if you just were to stop there, you would feel like, well, John Mark was sort of this young you know, coward or defector that, that ran off and abandoned the Apostle Paul. But the story doesn't actually end there. Later, we see Paul, when he is uh, later on, years, some years later, we see Paul actually mention John Mark again, but this time with, with a great sense of trust. He says, send for John Mark. So apparently John Mark had redeemed himself, had reproven his trustworthiness to Paul, and Paul now saw him as someone that, in the words of Paul, was helpful to him. So he was a, a companion to the Apostle Paul. He was uh, someone who grew up around the early church, but he was also, and this is, this is important, he was also a very close companion and assistant to the Apostle Peter. So this, you might be asking, okay, so, so Sam, you said in the beginning that this is the Apostle's account of the Lord Jesus. Well, well if John Mark wasn't a disciple, and if he was just a young child at the time, then, then how is he a credible source? And the answer is that this book gets its credible, its apostolic authority, because John Mark was really more like a scribe or a, an investigator of the Apostle Peter. So many scholars actually see the book of Mark as being the Apostle Peter's gospel. It's Peter's account of the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. Isn't that interesting? And John Mark is simply writing this down. So that's a little bit about the author. About, what about the date? When was this book written? 
the book was probably written, we don't know exactly, but we know it was within 30 years of the death of Jesus Christ. Probably around 65 AD seems to be the most commonly attributed date for the book of Mark. Now, why is that significant? Why is that important? Well, it's important because it helps us understand what was going on in the church at that time. So persecution was beginning to break out. Uh, within five years, if it was truly written in 65, within five years, Jerusalem itself would be destroyed in 70 AD um, be, because of, of false rumors that were, that were made up. I mean, Caesar Nero would have been uh, in power soon. There was all kinds of, of, of tension now growing within the church. And, uh, and John Mark is writing to solidify who this person of Jesus is for a church that at this point would have now, uh, it would have been decades since Jesus lived. And they would have been wanting to know, who is this Jesus? Who truly was he? So Mark takes the time to write this down. Well, what about the audience? Who's he writing it to? Well, most people agree that, that it seems like the book of Mark was written to Gentiles. Why do we think that? Uh, we think that because... Mark omits a lot of things uh, that only Jewish people would care about. You know, he, he doesn't include all of the long Jewish lineages. Uh, he doesn't include a lot of the, the Old Testament quotations or, or some of the sermons that maybe would have had more application to the Jews. He gets right to the point. It's a very Gentile-ish book, if you will. And some of the language that he uses, as we'll see here in a moment, some of the language that he uses is very Gentile. Very Greco-Roman, so so each of the you know each of the uh, gospel writers wrote with a different intention in mind, and it seems that Mark was intending to reach the audience perhaps of the Gentiles. So that's a little bit of background about the book. Now, what are we going to look at today? Today we're going to look at the first twelve verses, and the first twelve verses really are could be considered Mark's prologue. Mark is attempting to get the reader up to speed on everything they need to know about the person of Jesus in order that he might tell the story of the ministry of Jesus. Now, in all four Gospels, in the three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and then John, which is a little different than those three, in all four synoptics, or on all three synoptics and John, uh, each author chooses a different point to start, a different point to punch into the narrative. And it's kind of intriguing to think about, actually. Uh, for instance, uh, Matthew, he chooses to start... Um, with a lineage, a lineage of Jesus. Why? To prove the credibility of Jesus's line, that he in, true, in fact did come through the line of Judah. In Luke's account, um, we get all of this background story about Zechariah and Elizabeth and the, the prophecy of how John the Baptist came in, in addition to uh, a lot of extra information about Jesus even as a young person. Uh, Luke is just the most information. John, uh, he reaches back to the beginning of the creation of the cosmos. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, right? Um, this very interesting way of starting. But where does Mark start? Let me ask you a question. Where would you start? Where would you start? If you were going to sit down and write an account of Jesus' life, what would you need to communicate to the audience that you, especially if it's an audience that doesn't necessarily believe all of the Old Testament, where would you start? What would you find it necessary to explain or clarify about the person of Jesus in order that your audience would be able to understand with some clarity what he's doing and why he's doing it? Well, that's what we're going to figure out today of what Mark did. Mark, where did Mark start? Where did he punch in? What did he think it was necessary to communicate about the person of Jesus in his prologue. 
So let's just dive right in. Uh, we're gonna work through the text verse by verse, and as we work through it, I'm going to give you a series, 12 in totality, a series of, of truths about the person of Jesus Christ through the lens of Mark, and it's going to form a biblical Christology, a biblical understanding of who Jesus is according to the Gospel of Mark. Let's dive in, verse one. Verse one, chapter one. The beginning of the Gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. I'm gonna stop there for a minute. I know we haven't made it very far, but I'm gonna stop there for a minute because this first sentence is packed with importance. I need you to see something. First of all, this first sentence, many believe actually is the title of the book of Mark. You see, when uh, the gospel writers would write something out, they wouldn't necessarily um, write at the top of the page like you and I would if we were doing an essay or a paper, uh, the title. Uh, the first introductory line would oftentimes be considered uh, the title uh, and the summary, uh, kind of the, the um, yeah, summary of what Mark is going to say in the totality of his work. So really, if you step back, we need to think about this because not only is this maybe the title, but this is kind of the summation of what this whole book is about. So keeping that in mind, what does he say here about the person of Jesus Christ? We learn three things right off the bat about who Jesus is just from this first line, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. The first one is this, write it down. First thing I want you to see about Jesus in this first line is that Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is the gospel. Notice Mark says that. He says the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. The word gospel, I know it's something that we're familiar with. It's a word that we use and throw around a lot, but it's worth taking a moment and double-clicking on and just understanding what this word is and why Mike de or Mark deploys it here. The word gospel is actually, um, even though there's a Hebrew version of it, it's actually a Greco-Roman word. It was a word that was mostly used in this day for the emperor cult. What's the emperor cult? The emperor cult was that, that uh, the Caesars, the, the dynasty of the Caesars, actually believed they were God. They believed they were God's sons. They believed that they had divine authority. And so um, whenever a new Caesar would either be born, perhaps a new heir, or a new Caesar would, um, would become of age or would ascend to the throne, um, they would send out news of that, and that news was called the gospel, euangelion. Okay, it was also used to um, bring news of, of victory uh, over the enemy, or, but, but primarily it was the, the newness of a new administration within the emperor cult. So, so a new son of God, uh, Caesar, his new son of God, had ascended into the throne and the news went out. Now Mark is borrowing that language and he's using it to describe the person of Jesus Christ. He's saying Jesus is the euangelion. Jesus is the good news that there is a new administration. God the son. God's son has arrived. Now this would be fairly dangerous in a sense for Mark to do considering um, to declare that someone else was God the Son or that there was a other, an other gospel other than the one of Caesar would have been um, really treasonous. So by using the word gospel, uh, Mark is, is taking a risk here. Uh, but he wants the author to understand, he wants the readers, pardon me, to understand right away that this message he's about to portray is the euangelion, that there is a new king, there's a new administration, uh, newness is, is coming. And notice that he says it in the singular. Oftentimes when the, the Greco-Roman world would use gospel, euangelion, it would be plural. But in this particular case, the New Testament authors always use it in the singular. There is one gospel, and that gospel is Jesus. 
If I had to synthesize down uh, the gospel, which is in many ways very complex, if I had to synthesize it down to its most basic terms, I would say Jesus. <laughs> he is the gospel. The gospel is Jesus. And it's not a philosophical position. It is an announcement. It's an announcement of a reality that has taken place that the king of the world has entered into this world and is now breaking in with a new administration. So number one, Jesus is the gospel. Number two, Jesus is the beginning. He's the beginning. I want you to see this because I read right past this the first time I read the book of Mark. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Do you see that? He says, the beginning of the gospel. Now, when I first read that, I thought, well, he must be talking about the beginning of the book. This is the beginning of the book. But that's not what he's saying. He's saying, look at it. He's saying that everything that Mark is about to record about the person of Jesus is just the beginning of what Jesus is going to do. It's just the beginning of the gospel. Mark had this uh, very clear understanding of what theologians would later call inaugurated eschatology. Inaugurated eschatology, put very simply, means inaugurated, meaning now, eschatology, meaning later, now and later. Uh, another way you could put it is the already not yet. It's the reality that, that Jesus' good news is both good news now and it's good news later. It's, it's his kingdom is both here and it's coming. And both of those truths are true at the same time. So Jesus is coming and living and dying and raising and ascending and sending the Spirit is just the beginning of the good news. It's just the beginning of the gospel. We have so much more to come. The, the fact that Jesus will return is part of the gospel. Did you know that? Oftentimes it's the neglected part. We think of the gospel as being the cross, but the gospel is the totality of Jesus' work. And we are still in the middle of the gospel being unfold, unfolded. This is why when uh, Luke wrote his uh, book of Acts to record the early church, he said in the last book, meaning his gospel, I recorded all that Jesus began to do and teach. Jesus is still working. It's still gospel. Gospel is still happening. And we need to live like that. We need to think like that. We need to think, hey, you know what? Not only do I believe the gospel as though it's something that has happened, I believe the gospel as though it is something that is still happening. There's an anticipation about it, an excitement about it. Jesus is just the beginning. That word beginning, I believe, is meant to hearken us back to Genesis chapter one when God had a first beginning, the beginning of creation, the protos, the beginning of creation. And now Jesus becomes a new beginning. How many of you guys have found that to be true? That Jesus is a new beginning for you. And that every morning when you wake up and you feel as though you've blown it, or you feel as though you've just totally mucked up your life, you need to stop and believe the gospel for yourself and remember that Jesus is a new beginning. He's a new beginning every day. His mercies are new every day. What a, what a beautiful reality. So Jesus is the gospel. Jesus is also the beginning. And thirdly, just in this one line, I need you to see this. Jesus is also the continuity and the culmination of God's redemptive work. What am I talking about? Uh, notice the title that Mark gives to Jesus. He says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That, that deserves our attention for a moment. Why is Mark picking that title? Why is he stringing together those three titles? Jesus Christ, Son of God. What are the significance of those three things? And why is he deploying them right here? Well, first of all, let's take them one by one. Jesus was his human name, okay? Jesus was a very common name among Jews, Yeshua. 
Um, and and, and it, it reminds us of the fact that Jesus was not only fully God, but he was also fully human. He had a very human and a very normal, a very common name. But Yeshua, the meaning of it, has profound significance. Yeshua in the Hebrew means Yahweh is salvation. Yahweh is salvation. So God built, when he, when he told Mary through the angel that she was to name him Jesus because he would save his people, uh, it was built into his name that he is Yahweh saving. So Jesus, and then Jesus Christ, which is, uh, I know we know this, but just a little review. Christ is not his last name. Christ is a title. It would make more sense if you read it to say Jesus the Christ, the Christos, uh, which just simply means anointed. He's the anointed one. He's the chosen one. But in this case, it's not just that he's any chosen one. There was many chosen ones throughout the Old Testament, throughout the scripture. Moses was chosen. Elijah was chosen to do a particular work of God. But no, this here should be capitalized. In fact, it is capitalized if you have a good Bible. The Christos is he is the anointed one. He's the anointed one, the anointed one that Jesus, or that, pardon me, the Father has been saying would come all the way back since Genesis 3, the proto-euangelion, when God promised that he would crush the head of the snake. The Messiah, the anointed one, the one that, that Israel's been waiting for, he is here, and his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus, the Christ, and don't miss it, the Son of God. Now, the Son of God, uh, that's a confusing title to a lot of people. Um, it doesn't necessarily connote his divinity. There's other places that we can more clearly make the case that he was God. Um, but the Son of God means basically that he was sent of God. He was God's Messiah. God picked him out. God sent him. He is God's Son and God the Son. Okay? So when you put it all together, Yahweh is salvation, who is the Christ, has been sent by God to save his people. Why does that matter, Sam? It matters because what Mark is doing here in listing those titles is he's letting us know that this is not some new thing. This is a continuation of the thing that God has been doing this entire time. Jesus is the continuity and the culmination of all of God's redemptive work through all of Israel's history. Jesus isn't, oh, God changed his mind and decided to take a different approach. Judaism wasn't working out. No, Jesus is the culmination and the continuity of all that has been done. Now, you notice Mark doesn't introduce a birth line like the other gospel writers do. You know, he doesn't take the time to prove that Jesus came from the line of David. Why doesn't he do that? Well, I think he does it right here. I think he does it by saying that he is Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God. This, if you will, one commentator put it, this is Mark's birth narrative. It's him giving the credibility that the other gospel writers gave through a lineage. He gives it by simply ascribing this title of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. All of the Old Testament has been pointing towards this moment, and Jesus is the culmination of all that. Remember Jesus said in John chapter 5 to the Pharisees, he says, you search the scriptures because you think in them you have eternal life, but it is they that speak of me. And Jesus, when he was resurrected, he sits with his disciples and he preaches a sermon going through the entire Old Testament, pointing how all of the Old Testament finds its culmination, its termination in the person of Jesus. He is the Messiah, the gospel. What an amazing reality. Continue on here, verse, verse two and three. Mark says this, he says, as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, behold, I send my messenger, before your face, who will prepare your way? The voice of one crying in the wilderness, 
prepare the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. If you're anything like me, you just kind of read right past that and go, yeah, okay, so Mark's quoting some Old Testament passage about John the Baptist, great. Um, you know, let's, let's move on, but let's, let's stop here. Let's think about this for a minute. Let's be good Bible students. Let's ask the right questions. The right question is, why is Mark deploying these two Old Testament passages? You can find them in Malachi chapter 3 and Isaiah chapter 40. Why is Mark, who rarely does this actually, why is he stopping to quote an Old Testament passage uh, before he starts to explain who John the Baptist is, which is what he's going to do in a moment? Uh, And the answer is, is that Mark is giving credibility to the person of Jesus Christ, the new administration of Jesus Christ, by giving the the biblical Old Testament um, foreshadowing that the Old Testament knew someone was going to come and usher in the new kingdom. You know, when you have a new kingdom administration, typically you have someone that prepares the way for that new kingdom administration, right? It only makes sense that if you have this euangelion, you have this new king coming in, that someone would be there to, to make sure everyone's ready for him, to create a procession, to create a parade, to create a, a, an acceptance, whatever it is. Well, well, in this particular case, Mark is showing that that person is John the Baptist, the person that the Old Testament prophesied about. That was John the Baptist. You know, when I went to Israel years back, um, we were there at the same time as the Pope, which is super annoying. I would just would recommend never going there at the same time as the Pope. Uh, when the Pope comes to Israel, they roll out the same uh, greeting level that they do when the President of the, United States, President of the United States comes. And so we were there and literally as we're walking or as we're driving through Jerusalem, they're shutting down blocks, like city blocks are being shut down, and they're, they're draping massive, like 100 by 100 foot um, Vatican flags, and the colors are everywhere, and there's pictures of the Pope, and, and it's just like they're preparing for this big event where the Pope is coming, and we were just trying to stay out of the way. Well, what's my point? My point is when someone significant comes, we prepare for them. When someone significant comes, we prepare for them. And Mark's point here is that someone significant, in fact, someone who is the most significant has come, Jesus Christ, and God, uh, like you would expect them to do, sent someone to prepare for him. That someone was John the Baptist. Not quite what you would expect, though, right? <laughs> you, would, you would expect maybe something a little bit more grand, not some crazy guy in the desert wearing knitted camel's hair, right? Uh, but this is the way God works. Uh, but what Mark wants you to see here is not just that John the Baptist is the preparer, but that John the Baptist was always part of the plan. That even back in Isaiah chapter 40 and Malachi chapter 3, this had been part of the plan. Now, having said that, I need you to see something here. So bear with me, okay? Let me just nerd out with you for a moment. There's something here that Mark wants you to understand in these two Old Testament references. Do you know what a hyperlink is? You know, when you're, when you're, you're doing something on a, on a website or you're sending an email and you want to embed a link, um, you, you hyperlink it so that when someone clicks on it, it takes you to another page. It takes you to another place. I think Mark hyperlinks these two passages because he wants to connect our minds as good biblical students. He wants to connect our minds to something within the context of those Old Testament passages. Two things in particular. So why don't you turn there with me. Mark chapter, or pardon me, uh, Malachi chapter three, just a few pages to the left. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament. Let's look at this quotation within its context. And let's see if there's a couple things we can't learn here from this. Malachi chapter three, verse one. So here's the quotation. He says, behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me. 
and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Now, we've seen the part that's been quoted, but there's more to learn here about why Mark is using this. He says, um, he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will come suddenly to his temple and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And who can stand when he appears? For he is like a refiner's fire. That's a purifying fire. Uh, He's like fuller's soap. In other words, he's coming to cleanse. He's coming to reform. He's coming to fix something. Well, what's he coming to fix? This Messiah. He will sit as a refiner and a purifier of silver. He will purify who? The sons of Levi. Who are the sons of Levi? The sons of Levi are the priests. He's talking about the priesthood. He's talking about the temple. And refine them like gold and silver. They will bring offerings in righteousness to the Lord. That was one of the things that that Israel just seemed to always struggle to do, was to bring a pure and a righteous offering. The priesthood was often corrupt. Uh, Idols were often brought into the temple. Um, And and, and Israel was often in an apostate um, position where they were unable to really interface with God in the way that he had designed for them to do. Verse 4, Then the offering of Judah and Jerusalem will be pleasing to the Lord, in the days of old and as in former years. Now, what in the world? Why is Mark using this reference to refer to the preparation for Jesus, to make a way for Jesus? I think the answer is that, that he wants us to remember, he wants the author to remember that Jesus came in order to come to his temple and fix it. So what does that matter? Well, we know Jesus came to the temple. We know he flipped over tables and all that. What I need you to see is that Jesus not only came to his temple, he became the temple. He became the, see, the temple was the place where God and man were reconnected. He's the, the temple was the place where, where man was be able to, supposed to be able to come and, and interface with God. The significance of this passage is that this Messiah, when he comes, he will come to fix the interface. We know that Jesus actually would come to fulfill the interface. He would become the way that we now connect. So in a sense, you could say that Mark is, is trying to get his audience to, to understand that, that, that John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to prepare the ultimate way. John the Baptist prepared the way for Jesus to prepare the ultimate way, the way back to him, the way to connect to him. There's other, one other thing I Mark wants us to see, I think, in this quotation, and that is not only that Jesus is the way, but that Jesus is Yahweh. Um, sometimes, sometimes people kind of go, you know, do we really know that Jesus is God? Do we really know that he claimed to be definitive? Like, do we, did the biblical authors really say Jesus was God? Uh, well, they do. They do it many places, and, and this is just one of them. But I want you to see this. If you notice, if you still have your finger in Malachi 3, um, it, the quotation says, Behold, I send my messenger. Now, who's talking here? God's talking. Yahweh's talking. God is saying, I will send my messenger, John the Baptist, and he will prepare the way for who? For me. For who? Yahweh. Yahweh says, I'm coming, and the messenger will prepare the way for me, and I will suddenly come to my temple. Now look at Mark, and look at what Mark changes. This is really important. This is interesting. Tune in. Okay, look at what Mark changes here. He says, behold, I, Yahweh, send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way. He changes it from my way to your way. Who's the you? Who's the your? Jesus is the your. Okay, I don't know if you're connecting this, uh, but you can go back and study it on your own. What I want you to see here is that Mark is saying that Jesus is God. 
He's saying that Jesus is Yahweh coming to his temple. He applies a text that talks about preparing the way for Yahweh and says Jesus is that Yahweh. Jesus is God coming to his temple. So, Jesus is Yahweh. It's important to understand. Moving on now, verse 4. John appeared baptizing in the wilderness, proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. All the country of Judea and all Jerusalem were going out to him and were being baptized by him in the river Jordan, confessing their sins. Now John was clothed with camel's hair and wore a leather belt around his waist and ate locusts and wild honey. Okay, now when I, when I looked at this passage with my kids, um, my son Justice, he has a, a little bit of a hard time still sometimes, so I said, hey buddy, I want you to close your eyes and I want you to picture this scene. So I'm going to ask you guys to do that. Okay, so close your eyes and I want you to picture this scene. Okay, you have John the Baptist who is standing in the middle of the Jordan River. Now when you think of the Jordan River, don't think of this big, wild, you know, Cascadian River. Think of this really kind of small, tiny, muddy um, river, sort of in the desert, Northern California looking. And John the Baptist is standing in these massive crowds around him because it says that all of Judea and all of Jerusalem were going out to the wilderness to, to see John the Baptist. So he's standing there and he's dunking people one after another. He's preaching out loud. And you can imagine John the Baptist is wearing camel's hair. Now, don't picture a camel's skin, because that would be wrong. Picture a camel's, uh, camel's yarn woven uh, uh, dra- a jacket, if you will, or, or, or a garment. This is the scratchy camel's hair woven together into a garment with this big leather belt. And don't picture your belt that's on your pants right now. Picture a wide piece of leather, probably roughly cut, that's around his waist in order to keep his garment in place. Okay, can you see it? Okay, question. Oh, and by the way, he's still got some locust legs on his mouth and honey and, uh, you know. But why, why does Mark and this, all the other gospel writers, why do they seem to take the time to describe this man? It's so random. I mean, of all the things that could be said, uh, the gospel writers all seem to take the time to, to, to give us a visual of what this guy looked like and, and what he wore. Um, I don't know exactly the answer to that, but I do believe this. I do believe this, and I think this is a side note, okay, sidebar for us here. But I think there's a point for us to draw out, and that is that it puts the emphasis on the fact that John did not come to be comfortable. John did not come. John came into the wilderness. He was um, not the most popular person. He was popular among those that were repentant. He was not in a comfortable place. He lived in the wilderness. He didn't eat a comfortable diet. He didn't have uh, a comfortable clothing. He wore scratchy camel's hair. Now, with me, really quick. Actually, I'm not going to have you turn there. I'm just going to try to paraphrase it. In, in Luke, you can look at it later. In Luke chapter 7, Jesus gives his description of John the Baptist. And he says, what did you go out in the wilderness to see? Okay, what, did you, what, did you, what were you expecting a prophet of the Lord to look like? This man who's called to declare the truth. What did you go out to see? Did you expect to see a reed shaking in the wind? In other words, did you, did you expect to see a, 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 a frail, weak, um, feminine man? Or what did you expect? Uh, he, he says, what did you expect? To see someone wearing fine clothing? He, Jesus says, those who wear fine clothing live in king's palaces. He says, what did you expect to see? A prophet? He says, behold, he is a prophet. And among those born of women, there is none greater. 
Why is Jesus talking about the apparel? Why is he talking about the demeanor? Why is he talking about uh, the, the demeanor of, 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 of John? I think there's a lesson for us to learn here. Okay, and, 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 and hear me on this. I think there's a lesson for us to learn here about what it truly means to be one who is willing to prepare the way for Messiah, which, by the way, should be you and I. We have a lot more in common than John the Baptist. We have a lot more in common with John the Baptist than you think. See, like John the Baptist, we sit in a point where we are anticipating the return of Christ. Like John the Baptist, we sit in a position where we have a message that we are to be declaring. Like John the Baptist, we call people to repentance. We call people to change their mind. Like John the Baptist, we sit in a time where there is many, much apostate religion around us, and we call people to be authentic, to be true believers. But unfortunately, we, don't, we, like, we like the idea of the message of John the Baptist, but we don't like the lifestyle of John the Baptist. Okay, John the Baptist had to wear a scratchy clothes. He had to live in the wilderness. He had to eat a diet that was not desirable. Uh, Jesus is saying, hey, you, you want to be like them? You want, you, want to have a pro, you, want, you want to have a prophetic ministry like John the Baptist? Be ready to be disliked. Be ready to be uncomfortable. Be ready to, to have to wear scratchy clothes. Now, here's, a, here's just a thought. Okay, I think one of the problems that we have in our Western context is that, is that we want to be used by God, but we don't want to get uncomfortable. We want to be used by God, but we want to live in nice, soft clothes. We want to live in nice king's palaces. We want to be reeds shaken by the wind. We want to hug culture. We want everyone to like us. We don't want to have to be unpopular. We don't want to have to be uncomfortable. We don't want to bring a message that might offend somebody or bother someone. We want to be inclusive. We want to be woke. We want to be charming. We want to be just, just real soft, okay? Here's the reality. The reality is, is our message is life to those who want it and death to those that don't. The reality is, is that we will be more and more and more hated by culture for bringing the truth. The reality is, is that our life could potentially look a lot more like John the Baptist's. And I guess my point is just simply this. Get ready to wear camel's hair. Be ready to wear camel's hair. Be ready to be in the wilderness. There may be a time coming where we are not going to be comfortable as Christians in this culture. Will we be like John the Baptist in that moment and embrace the hardship? What we need is a generation of John the Baptist. We don't need another generation of shaking reeds who live in King's Castle with silk sheets. We need a generation of Christians that are ready to be uncomfortable, that are ready to do hard things for the gospel, that are ready to usher in the kingdom of Christ. Because just like John the Baptist, we are still anticipating the, the coming of the Messiah. And what, there's work to do. There's work to do. I know that's a rabbit trail, but I just can't help but wonder, why did Mark give us the details of his appearance. Well, that, maybe that's a reason. I don't know. Moving on. Verse 7, he preached, John the Baptist preached, saying, after me comes he who is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandal I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. So John immediately, his attention, he is getting the attention off of himself onto the, onto the, the bridegroom. Okay, in other places in scripture, John is referred to as the best man. Well, what's the best man's job? The best man's job is to get the attention of the bride to the bridegroom, okay, and to, 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 to prepare the way for the ceremony, okay? Unfortunately, as we're seeing a lot today in Christianity, there's a lot of um, pastors, a lot of leaders that are actually trying to take the attention of the bride. They want to catch a glimpse of the bride's eye. Rather than the, the bride look at the bridegroom, they want to maybe get some attention, get more followers, get more people, get more uh, clout and esteem or whatever it is. But John the Baptist here um, was the greatest of men, the greatest of servants, because he wanted all the attention to be on Jesus. 
He says, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal, like a, a good godly leader. Again, we need more John the Baptists in the world. We need more guy, we need more men and women ready to wear the scratchy clothes of prophetic ministry, ready to bring attention to Jesus rather than attention to themselves. People that are ready to lay down their comforts in order for the, to, to build the kingdom of God uh, and get attention onto Jesus. Now, verse 8 is important. Verse 8, we find another point about Jesus here. He says, I have baptized, John says, I have baptized you with water, but he will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. I have baptized you with water, but he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. Now, we need to stop here and ask a question. What's the difference between the baptism of John and the baptism of the Holy Spirit that was to come? What's the difference? A lot of people just kind of clump those together. They think, well, um, the, the baptism of John the Baptist was just basically kind of like New Testament baptism, right? Well, no, it wasn't. It was, it was unique. What was the baptism of John? Let's, let's think about that for a minute. What was the baptism of John? Where did he get this idea? Why did he start doing this? Uh, well, it was a unique thing that he was doing. Uh, it says particularly here, it was a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. Now remember where we're standing, we're standing in the old covenant still. Jesus hasn't gone to the cross yet. The new covenant hasn't begun. So what John is doing is by no means a new covenant baptism. What John is doing, I think maybe the best way to put it is he was offering Jews a public way of declaring a future allegiance to the coming king. He was giving these guys an opportunity to set themselves apart as the remnant from apostate Israel. See, Israel in many ways had gone apostate at this point. They, they, they had gone rogue. They were off the rails. They were not following Yahweh. They were not listening to the scripture. They were led by a money-hungry bunch of, of religious leaders called the Sanhedrin. And, and what John the Baptist is doing is he's creating a, a baptism, a symbol, a public declaration um, that, they're, uh, that they were now choosing to leave the apostate Israel and to um, dedicate themselves to Messiah when he would come. What's this idea of baptism, though? Where did this come from? Was this common? Uh, it really was not uh, something we see a lot in the Old Testament. Uh, John um, is seeming to borrow sort of a ritual idea that was used by the Jews to, um, to uh, bring what they called proselytes, so Gentiles that would convert and become Jews. They would go through this ceremonial cleansing where they would um, bathe themselves, and when they would come out, it was the idea that, that now they were Jewish. So John's kind of borrowing that, you know, and, and using that in order to give these Jews an opportunity. Um, but what's the difference between that and the baptism of the Spirit? Okay, I need you to be a Bible student here. Think about this. Question these things. This is how you read your Bible. You ask questions. He says, I have baptized you with water. That's John's baptism. But he, Jesus, will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. What is that referring to? Okay, what is that referring to? What it's referring to is what happened when you got saved, Christian. When you got saved, this is what happened. Now, you couldn't see it because it was a metaphysical, spiritual reality. But when you got saved, at that moment, you were regenerated. You were born Again, so Jesus is trying to explain to Nicodemus in John chapter 3. He says, you're going to be born again. You were born again of a new seed. You're born again of spiritual reality. Now, you are born into a new kingdom with a new set of desires, with a new set uh, of, uh, with a new heart, with God's word written on your heart. It's called regeneration. Okay, and that baptism is coming as a result of Jesus' life and death and burial and resurrection. When Jesus died and went to the Father, and resurrected and went to the Father, he sent the Spirit so that the Spirit could regenerate you and I, and we could be born again. 
Now, when we get baptized, it's just simply a reminder or a symbol or a public declaration of the fact that we've been baptized into the Spirit. Let me put it this way, in case you're confused here. John's baptism was for purification. Jesus' baptism was, or uh, the Spirit baptism of Jesus, is for regeneration. Okay, one is for purification, the other is for regeneration. John's baptism was for preparation. Jesus' baptism would be for incorporation, incorporating us into the body of Christ. So it's important, and this is point number six here, if you're writing these down, the thing that we learn about Jesus is that he will bring the baptism of the Spirit, the baptism of the Spirit, the incorporation of the believer into the body. It's a beautiful reality. Now, we need to ask another question here, and that is, why did Jesus get baptized? Have you ever thought about that? Is it kind of random? Why did Jesus get in the water in the Jordan? Uh, he, it says right here that the, the, the baptism of John was for repentance, forgiveness of sin. Jesus isn't sinful. He has no need of repenting. So why does he choose to step into the Jordan and allow John to baptize him? What's that all about? Uh, we need to ask that. Well, let's look at the text. Verse 9, in those days, Jesus came from Nazareth of Galilee, and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And when he came up out of the water, immediately he saw the heavens being torn open, note that, the spirit descending on him like a dove, note that, and a voice came from heaven, you are my beloved son, with you I am well pleased. So why did Jesus choose this moment? Why did Jesus come to be baptized? Let me just, just suggest a few reasons. First of all, I believe Jesus um, was baptized by John as a symbol of surrender. It was a symbol of surrender. He wanted to show publicly that even though he is God and even though he is Messiah, that he is still humbling himself and putting himself under God's redemptive regime, if you will, God's redemptive thread. Jesus says, I'm part of God's redemptive work here. I'm, part, I'm, I'm putting myself under John the Baptist, not in authority, but in, um, in collaboration. I'm part of this. Okay, so that's, that's part of it. But the other part of it is that Jesus is foreshadowing the baptism that you and I are going to have when, as New Testament Christians. He's, he's becoming the first fruits, the first one to be filled in this very unique way by the Spirit of God. Jesus is the firstborn. He's the first fruits. He's the older brother, the firstborn of many. And when he comes out of the water and, water and the Spirit of God abides on him through this dove, it's a, it's a, a foreshadowing of the Spirit filling that's going to come in the new covenant Christian relationship. But there's another thing here too. There's another reason that Jesus is doing that. And, and I'm not gonna have you turn there because we're running out of time. But it's super interesting. In John chapter one, write it down. In John chapter one, verse 32, John the Baptist says that God told him to go dunk people in the wilderness. He says, God told me to go do this. And the reason God told me to do it, John the Baptist says in John chapter one, the reason he told me to do it was so that God could identify who the Messiah was. He said, whoever the Spirit abides on will be the Messiah. So John's actually just following instructions. He did, he does, he's doing what God told him to do. Go out in the wilderness, call people to repentance, start dunking them. And God says, at some point, someone will come along and I will put my mark on them. I will put my signet on them. And that signet will be that the Spirit of God will come and abide on that person. Isn't that interesting? It's super interesting. And that's exactly what happens. So when you look at the narrative, Jesus goes into the water. When he comes out of the water, heaven opens, a spirit descends on him like a dove. In other uh, gospels, it says it remains on him. Um, and God the Father speaks from 
heaven. So this is really, you could say, this is a commissioning service of Jesus into ministry. This moment, what Jesus is in the water and the Spirit is descending, this is a commissioning service of Jesus. This is the beginning of his ministry. Why does Mark include it? Because Mark needs you to know this is the moment when Jesus' ministry started. This is when he started to, to, to begin his public three-year ministry. Now, really quickly, we're, we're going to wrap up here. Really quickly, there are four things that you need to see about Jesus from this moment. This moment where he's standing in the Jordan and all these different things happen. Four things you need to know about Jesus, so write them down. Uh, first thing you need to know is that Jesus, uh, though he was fully God, he was also fully man. And as he was fully man, he willfully chose to operate in the Spirit's power. Okay, this is important. Before Jesus went to do his ministry, he stopped to be filled with the Spirit of God. Okay, and as humans, we need to learn from that. We need to realize that, that before Jesus went into ministry, he was filled with the Spirit of God. We need the Spirit of God for the work of the ministry. We can't do the work of the ministry without the Spirit of God. It's very important. Jesus chose to willfully set aside some of his power in order to operate under the power of the Spirit so that he could be that example for us, um, so that he could live the perfect human life. So Jesus uh, was a man. He was willfully operating the Spirit. But also, second thing, Jesus was part of the Trinity. Do you see this here? Look at it. This is a snapshot of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. A beautiful snapshot. Here we are at the the commissioning service of Jesus in the ministry, and the whole family shows up. Okay, the Father's there, the Spirit's there. Jesus is second person of the Trinity. The Trinity is three persons with one divine essence, and all three are present here. This is amazing. This is profound. We need to remember that Jesus is part of the Trinity. Two things that are a little more personal here, though. Jesus is also the reopener of heaven. Jesus is the reopener of heaven. Look at what happens here. This is astounding. In this moment where Jesus is baptized and comes up out of the water, heaven is torn open. Heaven is rent. Okay, big deal. Well, it is a big deal because it's the first time that heaven has been reopened for, for forever. I mean, this is the first time that God is now accessible, that, his heaven has, that heaven has opened itself up. And what is the catalyst? What is the thing that has opened heaven? Jesus. Jesus is the catalyst. He's the thing that has opened heaven. It's this, this foreshadowing of the moment that will come um, when Jesus is on the cross and heaven opens again and the, the, the holy of holies opens and the, and the veil is literally torn and the spirit of God escapes upon the world and the centurion looks upon Jesus and says, surely this is the son of God. Jesus came to reopen heaven because heaven has been closed. Since Genesis 3, heaven has been closed. And the significance of this moment is astounding. One last thing here uh, that we need to see about Jesus, and that is that Jesus brings the pleasure of the Father. Jesus brings the pleasure of the Father. Do you notice that? When heaven opens and the Spirit descends, a voice comes from heaven, verse 11, saying, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. Okay, I need you to see that because I need you to know that what you need today is you need to be reminded of your human need to please the Father. That's what you're longing for. Did you know that? That's what you're chasing and you're subconscious. You're, you're chasing doing enough, earning enough from people and, and what people think about you and, and your own achievements. and your own, You're chasing um, the, the pleasure of something. Well, I'll tell you what that pleasure is you're chasing. You're chasing the pleasure of the Father. 
And right here, we're reminded where we have access to the pleasure of the Father. It's through the person of Jesus Christ. Because the Father is pleased with Jesus, he is now pleased with you because you are in Jesus. Jesus brings the pleasure of the Father. It's the exact thing that we all need and long for. Romans 8, chapter, or chapter 8, verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation. When you read this and you picture in your head and you remember Jesus popping out of the water and the pleasure of the Father abiding on him, I want you to remember, listen to me, listen to me. I want you to remember, Christian, that that pleasure extends to you. God is pleased with you. Not because of your works, not because you're so amazing, but because he's pleased with the son and he who is in the son is now uh, the, the father's pleasure abides on him. Isn't that amazing? He's pleased with you. Verse 12, a couple more things and we'll end here. Then the spirit, verse 12, immediately drove him out into the wilderness. Isn't that interesting? I mean, here's Jesus. He's equipped for ministry. He's had his commissioning service. He's, he's been dunked. He comes out. He's got power. And, and you would think the first thing that would happen is you go heal somebody, right? He's all charged and ready to go. You'd think the Spirit would lead him into a moment of, of profound preaching. I mean, he'd break forth in monologue. But that's not what happens. Interestingly, counterintuitively, the Spirit then leads Jesus into the wilderness to be tempted. What is up with that? So immediately the spirit drove him out into the wilderness and he was in the wilderness 40 days being tempted by Satan and he was with the wild animals and the angels were ministering. And just a little side note here, uh, we oftentimes think that, that the, the filling of the spirit of God must mean uh, happiness and pleasure and elation and joy and ease. It's not true. Oftentimes the spirit of God fills you when you are at your lowest. Oftentimes the spirit of God fills you when you are in the wilderness, when you are in temptation, when you need it. If you really want to be filled with the spirit, start doing things that you can't do in your own strength. Start doing things that you cannot do without the power of God being manifested. And you will feel the spirit of God fill you. The spirit of God filled Jesus so that he could go out into the wilderness and be tempted. Now we have to ask this question, why? Why did he have to go into the wilderness? To be tempted. What is up with that? What is that all about? I suggest two reasons, and these, these are our last two points about who Jesus is. Number one, Jesus, because Jesus had to become the relatable high priest. Jesus had to go into the wilderness because he had to become the relatable high priest. Hebrews chapter 4 tells us that he had to be tempted in every way. Did you know Hebrews says Jesus had to learn obedience? That tripped me out the first time I read that. I was like, wait, but he was Jesus. Well, it doesn't mean that he was disobedient, but it does mean that as a human, he had to learn how to trust the Father. And he had to learn how to, how, how to walk through hard things. He had to learn how to be tempted so that he could become the faithful high priest. So that he could become the faithful. Did we just lose cameras? No, we're good. We're good. Uh, he could become the faithful high priest that relates with us in our temptation. You want you to pray, when you pray to Jesus, I know this is review for you, but, but hear it anyways, okay? Uh, when you pray to Jesus, you're not praying to some, some cosmic, disengaged, uh, um, unrelatable God. You're praying to Jesus who literally was tempted in every way. He knows. He can relate with you. And that's partly why the Spirit drove him into the wilderness. But there's another reason. It's probably the most important thing I'm going to say all morning, so please tune in here. The other reason that Jesus was driven into the wilderness, was so that he could become the successful new prototype. Notice some things here that, that's in this that's, that's interesting. He was in the wilderness. He's starving for 40 days. 
He's being tempted by Satan, and he's with the wild animals. What does that mean? It doesn't mean that he's out there petting lions. It means that it's dangerous. He's in a dangerous and a hostile place. There's animals that want to eat him. Um, He's in the desert with no food. Uh, It's the worst possible environment. Why did God put him in this moment? Why would God lead him to a place of temptation? And I think the answer is actually this. I believe that God is putting Jesus in the anti-garden so that Jesus could become the anti-Adam. See, Adam was tempted in the perfect environment with abundant food in a nurtured and manicured garden uh, with, with climate control, right? And, and his beautiful wife, he had community. He wasn't alone. He had everything he needed. The animals were there, but the animals were not yet hostile to humanity. The animals were, were being ruled um, under Adam's rule, okay? So he's, he's there, he's in the garden, it's the perfect place to succeed. He's got food, he's got provision, he's got community, he has everything he needs. And it's in that place that Satan chooses to come and tempt Adam and Eve. And it's in that place of comfort that they failed and brought a cosmic curse on this world. Now contrast that with Jesus. Here is Jesus, the new Adam, Romans tells us. He's in a place not of comfort. He's not in a garden. He's in the wilderness. He's not around animals that are uh, subservient to him. He's around animals that want to eat him. He's of a belly full of food and all the food he can eat and all, all of the comforts that he needs. He's starving. He doesn't have the companionship of a bride and in, 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 in community and in, in God's presence right there tangibly. He's in a fallen and broken world alone by himself. Do you see the contrast? The point is Jesus had to be tempted to do what Adam couldn't do. And he had to be tempted in a way that proved that he was truly the greater Adam. Romans chapter five, verse 18 talks about this. You can look at it later. Uh, It says that by one man, sin entered into the world and through one man, sin has been eliminated. The new Adam has come, not in a garden, but in the wilderness. Jesus is the gospel. He is the beginning of a new reality. He is the beginning of the prototype of the the prototypical new humanity. And when he pops out of the water and the spirit of God comes and abides on him, it's a reminder of the new beginning that we now have in Jesus Christ, that he was tempted, but he didn't fail. He succeeded and his success is now imputed to us and the pleasure of the father is now abiding on us. And rather than having to be tempted in a wilderness, now we have the spirit abiding in us. It's a beautiful thing. Mark is introducing us to a Christology, an understanding of who Jesus is. Jesus, God the Son. Jesus, Jesus the second person of the Trinity. Jesus, the one who brings the pleasure of the Father. Jesus, the one who opens the heavens. Jesus, the one that brings the Spirit of God to baptize us and bring us united into his work. Jesus, the gospel. Jesus, the beginning. Jesus, uh, the, the Messiah, the one that was sent. Jesus, the one that succeeded where Adam failed. This is the Jesus that Mark portrays. Jesus, the relatable high priest. 
My heart with this, my hope is this, is to give you a picture of a Jesus that's worth worshiping. And this isn't the Jesus that I see in my subconscious. This isn't the Jesus that I feel. This isn't my truth. This is the Jesus portrayed by the apostles. This is the Jesus portrayed by Mark and Peter the apostle. This is the Jesus that Jesus declared himself to be and that the apostles understood him to be. The historical, the real Jesus, King Jesus who is now, right now, at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning. Okay? So what? So what? So what do we do with that? What do we do with this? Let me just suggest three closing things, and I just want you to write all three of them down, and then I want you to think about them, pray about them today uh, as you go about your day. I think that, that this text has three things that we, uh, three common um, imperatives that, that are relevant to us today. You know, there's some things about um, this moment where John the Baptist is standing in time. There's some things that actually correlate very similarly to where we stand at our moment in time. You know, you stand in a moment in time. Uh, it's the moment God picked for you. I know some of you don't like it. Uh, some of you are sick of it. You're sick of coronavirus. You're sick of political uh, polarization. You're sick of everything going on in the world. But this is the moment that God picked for you. And there's some similarities between the moment we live in right now and the moment that John the Baptist lived in, the moment that Jesus was baptized in. And I think we need to just point those three out. So here they are. Three imperatives. Number one, Jesus is the gospel. Declare his way. Number two, Jesus is coming. Prepare his way. And number three, Jesus is the example. Follow his way. Three imperatives, okay? Jesus is the gospel, declare his way. Jesus is coming, prepare his way. Jesus is the example, follow his way. Let me just break these down and we'll be done. Number one, Jesus is the gospel, declare his way. Okay, the good news is Jesus and Jesus is the good news. It's an announcement. And just like John the Baptist, our job, just like Mark the gospeler, our job is to simply hold him forth. Our job is to simply declare the good news of the inbreaking of this new kingdom, this new administration, the euangelion that's coming. That's our job, okay? It's always been our job. It'll continue to be our job until he returns. Our job is to hold forth the good news of the victory of Christ. Secondly, Jesus is coming. Prepare his way. You know, it's interesting. We look at this moment where John the Baptist is preparing the way for the Messiah. We're doing the same thing. The only difference is we're preparing for the second advent of Christ. John the Baptist was preparing for the first advent of Christ. Jesus is coming again. Except this time he's not coming to ride on a donkey. This time he's coming on a war horse. This time he's coming to separate sheep from goat, wheat from tare. This time he's coming to take back the title deed to the cosmos and to rule forever, to establish new Jerusalem and a new kingdom. So we are to prepare people for the coming of the king. It's no different than the ministry of John the Baptist. And it's a scratchy ministry. It's not soft king's clothes. It's not a reed shaking in the wind. It's a hard ministry. But we're called to it. We're called to that ministry. And lastly, Jesus is the example. Follow his way. When we look at Jesus here submitting himself and surrendering himself into the baptism of John, we see him being filled with the Spirit, sent out in the wilderness, equipped, ready to go preach the gospel. We need to remember that we not only have faith in Jesus, but we also need to have the faith of Jesus. We need to remember that we are also to walk this path, this walk of complete surrender and ministry, that we too have a ministry. That ministry is the same in many ways as Jesus, to preach the kingdom, to declare the kingdom to call people into that kingdom. And that to do that, we need the spirit of God like Jesus did. We need the power of God to fill us for that work. 
And he comes when we surrender and step into it. So Jesus is the gospel, declare his way. Jesus is coming, prepare his way. And Jesus is the example, follow his way, apprentice him. Amen.